0: Let's face it. Christianity is man's failed attempt to create God in his image. Judaism, conversely, is God's successful endeavor
1: at creating man in his image. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Jews who live in majority Christian countries are used to being inundated with Christmas imagery during the month of December. But while that might be innocuous per se, it also raises a more serious question of whether Orthodox Jews need to be concerned about the attempts of some Christian missionaries to convert Jews to Christianity. I would have said that while we need to combat the conversion of any Jew, Orthodox or otherwise, The danger to Orthodox Jews is minimal at worst. Rabbi Tovia Singer of Outreach Judaism suggests that the threat to Orthodox Jews is stronger than I believed. I spoke to Rabbi Singer in the wake of the Michael L. Cohen situation back in June. You can hear that interview in episode 67 of this podcast. Today I'm discussing the more general risk posed by missionaries targeting Orthodox Jews. Rabbi Singer explains what every Orthodox Jew needs to know and how they can combat the conversion techniques of missionaries more controversially, he bluntly explains why, in contrast to the opinions of many people working in the area of interfaith dialogue, Christianity is not good for Christians and does not have a real redemptive purpose, and that evangelical fundamentalists of all stripes are interested in Jewish evangelism, even if they don't say so out loud. We'll get to this fascinating and controversial discussion in just a minute. First— Please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish House team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Tovia Singer is well known as the founder and director of Outreach Judaism an international organization dedicated to countering the efforts of fundamentalist Christian groups and cults who specifically target Jews for conversion. A world-renowned public speaker, Rabbi Singer's YouTube videos have been seen by millions of people. He is the author of the book Let's Get Biblical, Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah, and is a frequent guest on television and radio shows. Rabbi Tovia Singer, thank you for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It's always a pleasure having you. Always a joy to join you here on air. You were on the show about half a year ago, Rabbi Singer, to discuss the, I'll call it, bizarre case of Michael L. Cohen. That situation was strange. It was tragic. It was difficult to understand. But because, as far as I know at least, he wasn't actively missionizing, at least in the way that we normally utilize that term, there was an element that perhaps makes it less frightening. So I wanted to ask you about the missionary threat in more general terms, in perhaps less celebrated cases. So... Let's assume that right now we're speaking to a mainstream English-speaking Orthodox Jewish audience in the U.S., Canada, Great Britain, as well as Israel. What should every Orthodox Jew know about missionaries? There's a responsibility for being an Orthodox Jew.
0: Along with your commitment to your faith comes the responsibility of being a guardian over the rest of Collies role. This is not some line that I came up with. It's Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, verse 7, where the servant is called upon to bring back the tribes of Jacob. So there's a responsibility in the Orthodox world. Must know that they're evangelical Christians, not liberal Christians, not Hillary Clinton Methodists, fundamentalist evangelical Christians Almost all of them are Christian Zionists who are dedicated to targeting Jews for conversion. What happened in the Michael L. Cohen case is a cancer, and it's stage four. If you're not familiar with this unit, there is no stage five. There are missionaries ensconced implanted in Jewish communities, not only here in Israel, but throughout the world. We've uncovered in the last few months missionaries in Phoenix who hop from Houston, who hop from Dallas, who hop from uh, the Twin Cities, who came from Portland. We have a huge missionary problem in uh, Chicago where you have families who look like the Haredim, deeply religious people, and their fundamentalist Christian missionaries who are targeting Orthodox Jews for conversion. They're doing this by selling Christianity in a Jewish way. That's what Michael L. Cohen was doing. And training other evangelicals how to effectively witness to the Jewish people. Their motive? They believe that the conversion of the Jews will trigger Jesus' second coming, an idea that's antithetical to the Jewish scriptures, but it's core, it's central to the teachings of the Christianity, who take this threat very seriously.
1: You said a lot, which I want to ask about. The first question I'll ask is about that evangelical threat you just mentioned. I have spoken to some evangelicals, some even who live in Israel, who insist that at least in their own circle, they have no interest in converting the Jews, that they respect Judaism, they know Jews have a separate way to God, or perhaps, alternatively, they don't, but it's not their business to try to convert Jews. You're saying there are others who do not feel that way. Do you feel that the type of evangelical you're mentioning, you're describing, who have a mission to missionize the Jews, is that the majority, or is that the minority?
0: There are a few kinds of Christians here in Israel. There are 200,000 christians in this country almost all of them are arabs and belong to the roman catholic church they are truly not interested in converting jews you truly do not have to worry about them there are christians in this country that are liberal christians they go to presbyterian churches they go to liberal anglican churches they too are not interested in converting anyone but then there are evangelical fundamentalist christians all of them want to convert jews many of them are deeply aware of how offensive it is to the Jewish people, and therefore they recognize that in order to evangelize, you've got to say that you're not evangelizing. You have to create plausible deniability. You have to work in this country, gain visas in this country, and allow fundamentals evangelical volunteers to come to this country. They, in turn, create social connections with Israelis and spread the gospel. You, the viewer, need to understand two rules about Jewish evangelism, listen very carefully. In virtually all cases, the person that succeeds in converting a Jew is a Gentile Evangelical Christian, not a Jew who's already converted. There is no doubt that you know of people personally that got involved in one of these groups. Maybe a cousin of yours, a family friend, ask her, who is the first person to witness to you? It wasn't someone who actually works for First Fruits of Zion. They're right here in Israel. It's not for from Project Joseph or the Messianic Jewish lines of America. These are people you work with, people you meet in a social gathering. You have to know how to witness. So these evangelicals know very well that if they say they're here to convert Jews, they're going to lose friendships and support. And therefore, they have to Deny now, evangelical Christians, fundamentalist Christians. I don't mean that as a pejorative. It's just Christians that are Protestants that re- reject replacement theology. Reject it, okay? Mm-hmm. Christian Zionists all believe the Jews must come to Jesus in order to be saved. They all believe that, with a very small exception of a group called dual covenant theology. I'm not going to get into that because. Unless you, if you ask me, I'll tell you about it. John Hagee happens to hold to that, but that's an exception. That's an outlier. We'll just ignore that. But they understand how offensive it is. The Christian Bible explicitly instructs Christians to convert Jews and more, and emphasize the evangelism of Jews more than non-Jews. Explicitly, Romans chapter one verse sixteen. I am not ashamed of the Gospels, the power and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Moreover, Paul instructs his readers that you should evangelize people according to their ethnicity, culture, and sensitivities. They understand this. Paul says, and when I say Paul says, you, the viewer, need to understand the ramifications of them. Paul's letters are the oldest surviving Christian literature that exists. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.20, To the Jew, I come as though I were a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To those who are not under the law, meaning Gentiles, I become as one who is not under the law. I could become all things to all men, that by some means I may gain them for Christ. This is outlined in the Christian Bible, same thing in Matthew chapter 10. So if a Christian says that they're not interested in converting Jews, that means they're a liberal Christian. There are them. Like we have liberal Jews who don't take their religion as seriously as they probably should. But the evangelical fundamentalist, whether they're Southern Baptists or Charismatically Assemblies of God who have a relationship with the— Uh, Messianic women, they're all interested in Jewish evangelism, but some of them are sophisticated enough to understand that you can't
1: come out and say you want to convert you because it will alienate people. Let's move on to the threat posed to the Jewish community, but specifically the Orthodox community. A few minutes ago, you talked about these people who dress up as Haredi Jews wearing black hats and suits going to various communities. I would think, as an outsider to the issues that you deal with on a regular basis, that the people who would be threatened by that kind of evangelism, that kind of missionizing, would probably be those Jews who are less knowledgeable. Obviously, our Jewish brothers and sisters, we need to take responsibility for them too. Do we also have to worry about Orthodox Jews? Is that a real threat or is that less of a threat? It's a real threat. In what way? Two ways.
0: Number one, we are raising a generation... That are simply ignorant of the Nevi'im Mahreum. We have done this. We have run we have raised a generation that simply never read the Book of Jeremiah once in their lives. Now, it is better here in Israel. The situation is less bad in Eretz Israel than it is in the United States, but it's still a nightmare. That's number one. So and why is that dream, a problem
1: when it comes to missionizing?
0: because when christians evangelize they use tanakh and i'm specifically more specifically referring to the no part the neviim part they're quoting passages in isaiah as an example and frankly although about 50% of our half come from the book of isaiah they're not quoting from well a couple they are but they're generally not so people we're raising a generation that's just not intimately familiar with the Neveim and not familiar with Jewish history. And Isaiah, for example, is a challenging book because it's not written the way uh, Joshua judges it in a chronology using normal prose and biblical language, but dense poetry, highly elastic, very dense in, in meaning and symbolism of 66 chapters, 60 of them are written poetically. I am now doing a lecture series in Israel of the entire book of Isaiah, so people will understand it. So there's a vulnerability there. But number two, the question presumes that people become Christians because of a certain verse, and this is never the case. People convert to Christianity because they feel broken, shattered, ashamed. Ashamed, not guilty. Guilty is a good thing. Ashamed is a nightmare. Low self-esteem. They feel that they've been abandoned by their own community. They seek corruption in places they were raised to believe it doesn't exist. And when people are alone and desperate, missionaries come with open arms and an alien message Um, these people are going to be very vulnerable. My aliyah was triggered by many things, including I was speaking in Israel in November 2018. I engaged in a debate in Jerusalem, and I was introduced to Jews who were Orthodox, by their friends who already believed in Jesus. And I was stunned I didn't know that this was going on to the extent it is. So the Orthodox community is vulnerable, less vulnerable than the Reform movement, of course, but very, very vulnerable to these evangelicals. There are missionary groups that have a special mission just to convert Satmer Hasidim. And have they been successful? There's a video on YouTube of a Satma girl being baptized in a church as she announces her name, and you could tell when she speaks that she's from a Hasidic family. Baptized in a church, a church, a Satma girl. There's missions specially for Babavir Hasidim. Literally special missions just for them. Even if we lost five hundred Orthodox Jews in the past year, even if it's only five hundred Jews, that would be a st- Staggering number. Even if he lost fifty Jews, and our work of outreachism is ongoing, but it's not, it is true that the more you know about the faith, your faith, less vulnerable you are. But Christianity attacks the soul or exploits exploits weaknesses in the soul. Tells you, you know why you feel like you're not a very good person because you really are You're a sinner. And in fact, there's nothing you can do to achieve a relationship with God. and You can't make your own life straight. And when you look in the mirror, the reason why you see your worst critic is because you are born in sin and you can't heal yourself, but Jesus can do it for you. And he died for your sins. And although others in your community have betrayed you, Jesus won't. That's how it works. And that's why Christianity is the largest religion in the world because of that message. It's a message that's contrary to the Nevi'im, the the Haftar on a fast day, Isaiah 55, where Hashem says, don't think that way, and seek the Lord when you find him. So that's why they're making inroads in the Orthodox community.
1: Then let me ask you, Rabbi Singer, about your own role in outreach Judaism, in trying to reach out to Jews who have been missionized. If it really isn't about proofs per se if it's about feeling betrayed by their community then what can someone like you even do they're not looking for the answers within Judaism they've already rejected that because they feel rejected by their families and by Judaism so how can you ever reach those people who have already converted to Christianity i'm very
0: fortunate because i have a very large youtube channel one of the largest in the jewish world i'm not sure of the number it's a little less than 20 million viewers about 48,000 subscribers. A lot of people watch me every day. And the beauty of this educational program is that we're able to reach Jewish people, no matter what their background, before they're fully committed, when people start having questions. So if you're able to illustrate to someone who hasn't yet fully ensconced herself in the church, and she's able to watch you, watch the message, and she doesn't have to do it publicly where, you know, she brings uh, shame to herself or her family, then you can get to people before they're fully involved in this. But it is true that when you illustrate, there are two things going on whenever you're helping someone. Number one is you're intellectually illustrating to them why this is not feasible, why, while... Whatever drug you're taking brings people relief. I had a conversation with a heroin addict the other day and asked them, like, what does it feel like to take heroin? I presume there must be some immediate pleasure, but in the long term, it'll kill you. So if you're able to demonstrate that, it really does help. Number two, as a counselor, you would know that you have to learn to listen and people speak to me and I listen. I listen really well. I try to find out what is, why is this person vulnerable and then address those issues. I'm always addressing the psychological issues in my lectures. Always, we, we, if you watch the programs on YouTube or public speaking engagements or every, everything I'm speaking about addresses the broken heart, not just the broken mind.
1: In our previous interview about six months ago, you did mention that you don't hear about Jewish jailhouse conversions, that a person was down and out, on drugs, in a terrible situation, and he found Moses. That's how you put it, because the way Judaism reaches That's somebody is clever. from the head. Yeah.
0: That's true. I mean, look at you, the viewer, have met many people who have converted to Judaism or in the process of converting it. First of all, the vast majority of them are former very religious people, and the vast majority of them are former very religious Christians. So we're not getting the, Jew, the Christians who didn't know anything, we're getting those who knew the most, and they're not converting because their lives are a mess and they're crashing in alcohol, but rather they're doing great and they're willing to give up everything for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's just the opposite.
1: You know, the fact that we're having this interview today right before December 25th isn't by chance. You talk about the reality of this emotional connection that they're searching for, a lot of the people who are targeted by missionaries. I wanted to ask if this time of year, right before Christmas, is an especially difficult time for people who are combating, or perhaps I should say an especially fertile time for the missionary to find subjects that they can evangelize.
0: Well, as it turns out, Christians... Missionaries that are target Jews that engage in Jewish evangelism see Christmas as a liability rather really? than an advantage. Yeah, yeah, they try to distance themselves from Christmas and concede. You ask any one of them, try it. Why is it was, that so? Was Jesus well? Because they know it's fully pagan, and December. Twi- it's not an accident that Hanukkah is on the 25th day of Kislev. That's not a coincidence. As it turns out, the idea of a festival of light, in fact, here in Israel, when we we may wish people a joyous festival of light. It's really a very ancient celebration, and our tradition goes long before Hanukkah. Yes, and Zara was,
1: says that, that it came back to the time of Adam Harishon.
0: Exactly. It goes back to Adam What happened was, is then the pay... Avoid de Zora idol worship emerged. Brilliant. I love speaking to a rabbi. So, <laughs> idol worship then emerges after Marishon, and they then take the lighting of the fire, especially at the darkest moment of the year, and they then misappropriate it. So, therefore, December 25th was celebrated throughout the Greco-Roman world for Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus means the unconquerable sun. They use evergreen trees because they're evergreen. The evergreen tree is like the gods that will not submit to the nights. Never The leaves never change color. Jeremiah warns us about Christmas trees in chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. I should say, for all you Puritan Christians listening to my voice right now, to your credit, you won't celebrate Christmas because you know all this stuff and you actually won't practice this grotesque idolatry. That means if you asked a Christian priest or minister who is just has any knowledge, they all know this is fully pagan, and then Christianity simply adopted it and made it uh a christian how they they know this they know we know from the new testament at least from the view of the gospels jesus wasn't born anywhere around this time of the year so they have adopt one more time adopted a pagan ideology and then through you know put jesus into it born december 25th that's in the ancient world, as the nights grew longer and the days shorter, and that's what's happening right now. This caused people to become very frightened. Josephus tells us a very interesting thing, that it was three years before the celebration of Hanukkah that Antiochus Epiphanes, on the 25th day of Kislev, he had a pig brought in and slaughtered on the altar, dafka, specifically, on the same very day because this was the day that was celebrated. And it was three years later that Hanukkah, where the temple was, was designated and cleansed and established as a day of special rejoicing. And if you're a Christian listening to this, it just happens to be Christmas is nowhere mentioned in the Christian Bible, but Hanukkah is in John chapter 10, verse 22. So as it turns out, it's a thoroughly pagan holiday, and Christians know it. It's one of the weird things that
1: Christians know it's pagan and do it anyway. Rabbi Singer, if you're walking down the street—and I'm not speaking about you, I'm talking about a listener—an Orthodox Jew who's reasonably knowledgeable— And he sees a missionary who tries to engage him, or he sees a missionary engaging somebody else. Should that Orthodox Jew try to refute the arguments of the missionary? Should he try to engage to talk to the missionary? Or should he walk away as fast as he can?
0: There's a Gemara and Sanhedrin that discusses addresses this. Don't engage someone unless you're thoroughly trained. But you should be thoroughly trained. There was a Christian preacher on the streets of Jerusalem just a few weeks ago in the Ben Yehuda area. I was walking and when I saw him, I hadn't seen one of these people in like a year and a half because the country has been closed down to foreigners. I took out my cell phone and just approached him and he was preaching Jesus, watch me as I do it. I just talked to him very gently and carefully and walk him through it, and it'll blow your mind away how it was done. Now, it wasn't magic there, but I just knew how to speak to him. So don't engage in counseling unless you're trained. Don't engage in any, any work unless you know what you're doing. And certainly, as a religious Jew, don't engage with a missionary unless you thoroughly understand how to respond, how to reply. But do that. But don't do it if you're not trained to do it because— First of all, you're going to wind up getting very upset, which is understandable. It's a big chutzpah. It's a goal for people to come into our home, our land, and try to destroy our faith. So I understand why you're so angry. But that anger is going to make you overly aggressive. And it's not going to create a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. Rather, understand, educate yourself. And then when you see a missionary, gently walk over and say, and this is what I said to the guy. I said to the fellow who can watch it on YouTube. has about 80,000 views. I said, please, share the gospel with me. Tell me why I should believe in Jesus. Very gently, he was screaming. And that like just stunned him. And I'm not going to tell you, I don't want to ruin it for you, but that just caused a complete shift. And you see how it runs out. But you do have to be able to speak to people in an intelligent way. These Christians... Many of them, not all of them, some of them are doing things they know are illegal. Some of them engage in stuff like that's terribly, terribly deceptive. But most of them are not Michael L. Cohen. Most of them are not Michael Dawson. Most of them are people who don't know. They've been brainwashed. And if you know how to talk to them, then proceed
1: and proceed carefully. Well, I assume that when you're speaking with them, that missionary is probably not even your primary audience. You're speaking to him a bit, but you're really making sure the people around who are listening in, that they hear what you say, I would assume. They're more likely to be convinced by your arguments than the missionary himself. So although I'm filming it, because
0: I want people to hear it, I am really, when I speak to someone, just as when you're speaking to somebody and counseling someone, all you're doing is zoning everything out. Like when I'm speaking to you, I'm zoning everything out. I'm just listening to your voice. So it is true that when I put on the video, I had no clue what was going to happen, how this would go. This guy was screaming Jesus. But the moment I'm engaging with someone, I'm locked in, and there's nothing else could distract me. As it turns out, looking back at the film later, I could see all these Hatzala people and people walking by they, it's zero. It's like their volume is turned down, and I'm zoned into the person I'm speaking to, regardless of what the situation is. I always turn everything down. And then, of course, I hope in the future I'd be able to share that conversation with other people.
1: Rabbi Singer, you talk about the need for everybody to be able to engage a missionary, for everybody to be trained to do so. That leads me to my question about how you first became involved in this sort of education, this sort of counter-missionary activity, how did a nice Jewish boy? You're from New York, I assume. Is that right? I'm not only from New York, but I'm also nice
0: <laughs> and Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nice, I'm very nice. I'm a nice, very nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. It's a Brooklyn. hat trick.
1: I like it. Yeah. How could a nice Jewish boy coming from New York get involved in talking to Jews who are thinking of converting to Christianity and speaking to Christians about what they're doing when they're missionizing Jews? How did that happen? I met
0: Jews I assume they were Jewish on the street corner of on a street corner in Midtown Manhattan on a Saturday night. My family we went to a restaurant after showers, and I saw these people putting up posters telling said come to Jews for Jesus and learn more about the Jewish Messiah and I was I was just shocked and I imagine that other people are How old were you at the just, time? I think 17, something mm-hmm. like that, about 17 years old. I was so mortified. I was so angry. You know, I was born 15 years after the Holocaust. Growing up in New York, seeing uh, it was ubiquitous to see people walking around me who had numbers on their arms and to think that uh, here comes the church to finish off what they didn't complete a decade and a half earlier just blew my mind that Jews would join Hezbollah. I mean, a spiritual Hamas. Like, what? So I was enraged, but I also realized in my conversation because I began to drag with them that I, I wasn't familiar with the arguments they were using, and I was just stunned by this. And I thought something had to be done. I, I that just was couldn't sit. One other point. I didn't care about Christians at the time. I didn't care about non-Jews at the time. It's not that I was ambivalent to them. I didn't like them at all. I grew up with anti-Semitism. It was a banality. It was just every – it was just mm-hmm. – I don't recall one nice non-Jew growing up. Like every, every, they were all very mean to me in Borough Park. You know, and you, you crossed to the other side of the street if you didn't want to get in trouble. So I was I was just thinking that Jewish people need to know why they shouldn't convert to Christianity, and I became very quickly aware of the fact that I had to study their texts and our texts and everybody's texts and understand this, and then I began teaching and lecturing. That was forty more than forty years ago, and my life is devoted to this and nothing else, helping people in the church return back to the Jewish faith. And there are, the largest number of people I reach are B'nai Noach, are people who are not Jewish, who are deeply interested in Judaism and study, go on YouTube, read my books, whatever, and embrace the Jewish faith as B'nai Noach, meaning the Hasidim, righteous Gentiles, And some of them do convert. And some of them don't and remain righteous Gentiles, which is fine. Right. That's correct. Which is great. What a noble thing. That's the Messianic Age, my friends, is not about the redemption of the Jews. It's about the redemption of the world. That's the key element of the Messianic Age. That's how it differs from the Exodus, the redemption of the world. Right.
1: Rabbi Singer, when you were 17 years old and thinking about or being inspired to go into this field, there was no Rabbi Singer to teach you how to do it. No. So how did you do it? How did you figure out how to combat those arguments?
0: You had to listen very carefully and study it very carefully. I just couldn't fathom how someone could be a Christian. Let me just set this straight. The idea of believing that a man died for your sins was just something that—it's not like a different orientation. It, the idea was antithetical to anything I'd read in Tanakh and the great messianic prophecies of a world redemption where peace would come, where the worldwide knowledge of God, where a, there would be a brewer, a a suffer brewer, a pure speech among all the nations. Zephaniah three. There's nothing remotely. Resembling I mean, there's a reason why—listen up, my friends—there's a reason why Isaiah chapter 2, the most epic messianic prophecy in all of Tanakh, even the United Nations, our good friends, had the brains to put a passage from that numinous chapter on the wall on 42nd Street and 1st Avenue. I mean, even the UN did. But that verse doesn't make it to the Christian Bible. Could you imagine that? Okay. So you realize something's going on and you realize that there's a message that Isaiah had and it's about listening to people and teaching and communicating and, and learning and learning everything that was that Christians were teaching and and all the... I mean, it's I, I want to say this to you. It's scammy. This is not Buddhism. This is not people, you know, just playing the guitar and burning incense. These missionaries have, not them, the the missionaries you encounter, they don't know any better. Their pastors don't know any better. But the church altered Tanakh literally in a criminal fashion, completely nefarious, altered the Jewish scriptures to make it appear Christological. This is literally a, a false shuffle. There are bad faith
1: actors in this universe, and I'm here to expose that. Do you teach other people how to do that as well? Apart from your work in reaching out to people who have been missionized or trying to reach Jews who have converted to Christianity, do you also teach people like me and my listeners how to combat the arguments of missionaries? So, yeah.
0: There are—I don't know the number, but there are thousands of YouTube videos on which I appear. The reason they're there is that you could look up any topic you like— with my name in YouTube, and see how to respond to it. I do a live, I do quite a number of live interviews, not just in this orientation, but regular interviews, and where people call in live with any question, Christians, Muslims, Jews call in, and then we address them. So the, the reason I do that is not so that I'm recognized every time I walk down Agrippus. The reason I do that is so that people anywhere and any time could put on a pair of headphones and study. I'm going through the book of Isaiah here in Jerusalem in a lecture series, so people can go home and study, learn, and become enriched by it. And then it's up to you, up to
1: you, the viewer, to take upon yourself this responsibility, and to what extent? A lot of people will say that it actually goes back to the Rambam and to others that Christianity has a redemptive function in the history of the world, that perhaps the idea, the message of Christianity is spreading the idea of redemption of geula. The Rambam says something along those lines. So do you believe that that's the case? In other words, I know that you, as as do I, do not believe that Jews should join Christianity. We have our Torah, and that's the way Jews should be. But is Christianity good for Christians? Would you think that uh, you don't think that non-Jews should be Christians?
0: No, no, it's the It's a poison, and it's a bigotry of low expectations. You Gentiles can do better than that. You don't have to drink from a puddle of water on the floor. You can drink from a glass from the living water. The Rambam in that context, meaning in the laws of kings and their wars, Hilchus Malachim, in chapter 10 and 11 explicitly says that there was no greater stumbling block in the world than Jesus and identifies a very uncomplimentary passage in the book of Daniel to convey how destructive he was. However, uh, the Rambam tries to explain and does an excellent job at explaining a conundrum. Listen carefully. It is striking that the religions that emerged after the destruction of the Second Temple are not only similar to Judaism, but consider themselves based on Judaism. Conversely, before the destruction of the Second Temple, Judaism was the only monotheism, let alone the only Abrahamic religion. There just was nothing else. There was only Judaism, and the rest of the world was pagan, henotheistic, and so on. In Tanakh, we are told explicitly that when the true Messiah comes, the Gentiles immediately recognize their error. Ten of them, of each of all the nations, grab the corn, the hem of a Jew, the knaf and say, take us with you. We have heard that God is with you. This is a very important point. This is all over Tanakh, that when the true Mashiach comes, the nations of the world immediately get it, recognize what happened here, and turn to the Jews and say, Jeremiah 16, verse 19, surely we, we the Gentiles, have inherited lies and vanity where there is no truth. How can a man make unto himself gods when they are not? So that's very important. They instantly get there. How could this be, the Rambam This is brilliant. Now, the potential for Mashiach began when the second temple was destroyed. Just so a point. One of the things the Messiah is to do is to bring about the building of a temple where there is none. Now, although it could have happened earlier if the nation could have pushed it like in the days of Hezekiah, but that's not the Norman and the Vim. The Norman and the Vim is the building of a temp is a building of a temple that had already been destroyed. It's all over the place. Take my word for it. Now, the problem is the following. If the world had remained non-Abrahamic and the Judaism was the only Abrahamic religion, then what will the world say when the Messiah comes? They wouldn't say, now we know you have the truth. They would say, what's that? Christianity and Islam both believe that Judaism was once true. I'm using just really um, simple language, conventional language. I don't want to be misunderstood. Both of those religions, which comprise half of the world's population, believes in one of those two religions. That means more than one out of two people on this planet believe that Judaism was the true religion and the Torah is a holy book. The Christians don't believe that about Christian holy about Muslim holy books, and Muslims do not believe that about Christian holy books. You got that? Now they both believe that at a certain point, because of their prophet, because of their demigod, because of their new revelation Whereas the commandments were once obligatory, and whereas there was a time when a person had to follow the Jewish practices, they have been absolved of that because of a new revelation, which would come either for Christians at the time of Jesus or for Muslims would come in the 7th century. Now, when the true Mashiach comes, what will the nations realize? That Jesus was never the Messiah and Judaism remains the true religion and nothing really changed. Judaism and Christianity were not on an equal playing field. We are muhzakim. Do you know what that means? That means that that we are the default baseline. Every Christian, if asked, if pressed, would agree... That if Jesus is not the Messiah, and Christianity was just a huge mistake, then it reverts back to the religion they believe was true a moment before the cross. And that's not Judaism, not just Judaism, but it's one iteration of Judaism. It's not the Judaism of the Sadducees of Tzedekim, who did not believe in the Oral Torah, or, or the resurrection is specifically orthodox. Now, the word orthodox Judaism is a relatively modern, a modern term. That's a modern term, of course. But but it's we don't need to use anachronism.
1: Rabbinic Judaism.
0: Call it whatever you want. Those who believe in the written and oral Torah, period. That's all those who believe in the written and oral Torah. Over the years, those terms change. You can use the word rabbinic Judaism, but the problem is the Christians sort of use that term as a hatchet to attack Judaism as somehow some uh, man-made iteration, whereas our greatest rabbis were the prophets. And rabbinic traditions, like Everything from praying three times a day to fasting on Kippur were instructed to us in the prophets. Fasting on Yom Kippur, which is oral Torah, doesn't say anywhere in Leviticus 23 mm-hmm. that you're supposed to fast, not eat or drink on Yom Kippur. Right? But it's in Isaiah chapter 58. So we have to be very careful when we use the word rabbinic Judaism. We can use it, but we understand that loaded. Our chief rabbis, the greatest men and women that ever lived, were the prophets. And Torah Shopei, the oral Torah, is loaded in the Jewish scriptures. The prohibition of buying and selling on the Shabbos day is in the Chemia, chapter 10 to 13. Most Orthodox Jews think that the only source for our oral tradition is the Talmud—that's a hum- humongous mistake. It's all over the Nevim. It's all yeah. over the Prophets. And by the way, a little secret: it's all over the Christian Bible, and no one knows it's all—it's all over. In fact, in Volume One of Let's Get Biblical, I have an entire chapter just devoted to this. So. Rabbinic Judaism—we <laughs> don't really even have the word rabbi in Tanakh. It means that the means the great ones, but the great ones were the prophets that triggered the Anche Knesset the Great Assembly, triggered the entire rabbinic movement. But that's when prophecy came to an end at the time of Alexander the Great. So, right, and that's the only iteration of Judaism that continued. I, if I do, I have a moment to make a point. Yes, of course. Right, listen very careful. There are two figures in the New Testament I'd like to direct your attention to. One is Peter, and the other is Rabban Gamliel. Peter, a—
1: Rabban Gamliel in the New Testament.
0: Rabbi Gamliel, but he's Rabbi Gamliel, the elder. I mean, he's one of the Bali Hamishnah. He's a Tano. Rabban Gamliel— I remember that
1: Paul said that that was his Rebbe, if I recall.
0: Well, Paul actually doesn't. Act, right. Acts says that— uh, like right, because that 's complete nonsense that's like like a high school kid who's into physics, and his teacher in high school claims that he studied under Einstein. I mean, you know to say that you're a student of Gamliel gave you some credibility paul paul 's writings are in the fifties Robin Gamliel was alive in the fifties Rabbi Gamliel died in the fifties, so paul couldn 't very well make that claim because he would have been shot down for it. But the book of Acts, which is written about 85, that's a good time later. Rabbi has long died. Then you can claim that, you know, <laughs> you can claim that Newton's era. It doesn't make a difference at that point. So, right, but the claim is made for Paul because he was the giant of the generation. Now, here's the key. The key is that all the Jews who became Christians during the first century, all the Jews who became believers in Jesus, they had children. Peter was a married man with kids their children are gone. That means they exist somewhere, but they no longer identify as Jews. They lost the covenant. Rabbi Gamliel from the house of David, his descendants are here. And I know many people, including I have a great grandmother's descent of him. So it's interesting that there are so many iterations of Judaism, so many sects that abandoned the traditions that were handed to us by the prophets of blessed memory and hatsad What they all have in common is their great grandchildren are not among us, identifying as Jews. So the those who followed Rabbi Gamliel. His teachings are here among us. You, I could read any text that Rabbi Gamaliel has written, and we have in our lives, and understand what he's talking about. And yet, none of Peter's grandchildren are here. Why? They weren't preserved. They lost the covenant. How do you know this is significant? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. It says this in in the Torah, that the covenant only extends to those who keep the Torah and love HaKodosh Baruch Hu. Those who abandon the proper path, those people are lost among nations, unless their grandchildren do tshuva.
1: Rabbi Singer, I'm guessing you're going to say that none of the arguments are compelling, but I'd like to ask you, which argument of Christian missionaries is perhaps, in your experience, the proof or the observation of a missionary about Tanakh, which is most appealing to Jewish people who are searching for something? Jesus changed my life.
0: Hare Krishna stopped me from taking drugs. My devotion to Sai Sai Baba, a preeminent guru in India, caused me to give up all kinds of foolish ways and change my life dramatically. I'm not the same person anymore. So this is not a a Christian element. This is something that is prevalent in apostasy. People are willing to abandon the truth— and abandon history, ignore it all, because they feel good. It's a problem, because it makes me feel good right now, and Jesus changed my life. What these people are ignoring, of course, is that there isn't a religion on this planet that doesn't have followers who are willing to die for what they believe, and doesn't there's not a religion that doesn't have followers that don't, don't claim miracles. Sai Sai Baba, incidentally, resurrected people from the dead. And he just died fairly recently, and he's got 30 million followers. That's a a huge number. Healing people, healing the blind, making the lame walk and the deaf hear. This was a huge character. We had people like that when I was a rabbi in Indonesia. One of them died, and people said that they... this is what's called a complex equation. In a, it's a logical fallacy that because my life has changed, therefore it must be true, because as you pan all the religions of the world, they all claim uh, these kind of miraculous experiences. And it's therefore, no matter how sardonic you and I might be about these claims, the Torah says, it takes a very different attitude. The Torah in Deuteronomy 13, tells us straight away if a person claims that he's a prophet or dreamer of dreams and is able to perform miracles. And he says, let us follow other gods that your fathers didn't know. Do not follow that prophet or dreamer of dreams. I didn't send him. I am only testing you to see if you love me. So the Torah doesn't mock them. The and later on would mock practices. Elijah mocks Baal. Isaiah mocks Baal in a very grotesque way in Isaiah 46, idolatry that uh, engaged in, in excremental affairs in order to— and Isaiah has a good time with this. But as it turns out, the Torah takes this very seriously. Aaron was able to throw a rod down and turn to a serpent, and uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do this as well. And it's really um, Christian. And I want to talk to the Christians for a moment. You're playing a game because the Mormons are claiming the same thing. They're claiming miracles as well. And the Roman Catholic Church is claiming miracles as well. And there are women in the Philippines and in Sao Paulo that think they have breakfast with Mary every Sunday morning. And you don't buy those miracles. And that doesn't influence you, does it? You're not taken in by the people who live in Bali who think that miracles are happening in their lives because they have a relationship with Hanuman, the Hindu monkey god, right? So, like, why don't you all become Hindus? Because there are loads of people like that on that f- gorgeous island. <laughs> the answer is you very carefully pick and choose the miracles you want to believe in that that feed your bias already and Exclude all the other miracle claims that just don't take you where you want to go. Tanakh encourages you to grow up spiritually, emotionally, to realize that Hashem who loves you, you're creating the image of God. Let's face it, Christianity is man's failed attempt to create God in his image. Judaism, conversely, is God's successful endeavor at creating man
1: in his image. Rabbi Singer, I'm going to push back against something you said because. I'm trying to understand. You obviously think that it's better for a non-Jew not to be a Christian. Yes. But let's say that non-Jew's alternative is not to be Jewish. You said he should go to the well of living waters. Let's say the alternative is to be an atheist and to have no connection with any religion whatsoever. Wouldn't it be better, from your perspective, that that person have a connection with God, however flawed, as you explained, that it might be?
0: Right. So we need to straighten things out because we're using conventional language. So we need to have a common language. So converting to Judaism, I'm going to address that, but we need to just clear this up because Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a single viewer who's listening to both of us who understands what this point is. There are two ways to convert to Judaism because Judaism unlike any other religion we are the Jewish people are an ethno religious group this doesn't apply to muslims it doesn't apply to christians we are both a people and a faith we're both islam is not both christianity is not both hinduism is not none of the we're ethno religious so we have to understand. and
1: that fact has caused us all sorts of problems when People who don't like Israel say, oh, you're not a nation, you're a faith, and because they don't understand the unique nature of Judaism.
0: People will do whatever they need to do to figure out how to make our lives miserable. Yes. (laughs) They'll say that there was no Temple Mount and there was no Holocaust, and the Palestinian Authority is very fortunate to have a luminary like Mahmoud Abbas who will do his dysentery, I nearly said dysentery, his dissertation on Holocaust denial. They all do this. There are two ways—listen carefully. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just—I need to explain this point. There are two ways to convert to Judaism. The way that you, the audience, understands this is that you actually join the nation and the faith. And that means converting to Judaism. So you're joining the nation. You become Zerah Avram. You become a Ben Avram. Literally, you're joining a nation. And you're embracing the faith of the Jewish people. However, in Tanakh, this is not the only form of conversion to Judaism. In the eyes of God, there is embracing the faith of Judaism, but not the nation of Judaism. You don't join the nation. And these are the chasidia, Umis, These are the, the, the righteous of the nations of the world. And they are assured a place in the world to come. This is very important. We don't talk about this much. And then there's a, a term. It's an anachronism. It's almost an unfortunate term called becoming a Noahide. go, you know, what's a Noahide? Well, it happens to be the oldest religion in the world. The oldest book in Tanakh is about a Noahide named Job. Notice Job was righteous. Nowhere in that book are we told that Job was righteous because he kept Shabbos and kosher. He only kept the seven Noachite laws. Okay. So when a person embraces the Jewish faith without joining the Jewish nation, that is a conversion, but that person does not have to keep... All the commandments, but only commandments that are given for all the nations of the world, often it is spoken of as seven commandments. It's really nearly 100 commandments into seven major categories. Okay, So it is important, it's vital for all peoples to embrace the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their faith, not necessarily join the nation. That's for sure not. Now, the Christian has an advantage, that's why the conversion programs, not only here in Israel, but around the world, in Chicago, and Los Angeles, and London, are filled with people who are former Christians. It's not that there are no former Hindus and Buddhists. There are. There are former Muslims. There are, but the vast majority of Christians. Christians would be most open to hearing about Judaism. On, on one hand, their religion Characterizes Jewish people in the darkest way possible. But there are Christians who come to like us, really like us a lot. And then the anti Semitism that's conveyed in the Christian Bible just disappears. And then when Christians begin to study the text, they're very open to Judaism because after all, they want to get back to the original. And this is a very big thing in the Christian world, not going off the rails, but Today, if you're a pastor and you want to double your membership, just come out with a Tallis next Sunday. Come out with a, pra- a Jewish prayer show. Have Hebrew words. You know, start teaching Hebrew. This is like the biggest in thing in the world. That's like this is this is it. It's all, and it's not only in North America and Israel, it's all over. In the Philippines, they're all doing this in South America. That piques the curiosity of Christians in Judaism. Then they want to start learning Hebrew, and you know where this goes. They start to learn about Judaism, and then they realize that the reason why Jews don't believe in Jesus is because we're aware of something, we're aware of what it says in Tanakh, in the actual original Hebrew. Christians are deprived of the Hebrew language. And the result, they depend on translators, and they're getting themselves into a lot of trouble. So Christianity is a, an amazing conduit for people, millions that become Noahites and thousands who convert to Judaism.
1: So let me get back to my question again to understand. Assuming that it's not on the table, that we're not talking about someone who's talking to you or me. We're talking about a Christian in in Idaho, Christian in Montana, never met a Jew— the possibility of becoming a Noahide, of becoming one of the tzaddiki umota olam, righteous of the Gentiles, it's simply not on the table. Are you saying you would rather that Christian be an atheist than to be a Christian? That's the one question which I still have.
0: Well, I mean, you're asking me, is it better to use heroin or, or meth? They're, they're both very bad ideas. Christianity, however, provides a conduit for which a person can come to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason why Christianity is so pernicious is because it is a shutfus, meaning a partnership. Christians genuinely believe in the Father. They believe in the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem and the self-inflicted wound is they also believe that there is another person or two other persons in the Godhead. And therefore, it is much easier for a Christian to come to know about a Baruch Hu than it would be for others. And we're, we can observe this empirically from the people who become B'nai Noach. The vast majority of them are former Christians, not former atheists, former Christians, not former Hindus. So Christianity does provide a conduit for people to come to know about a Baruch. Hu. Atheism is a complete denial of a Baruch. Hu. As it turns out, King David said that there really is no such thing as an atheist. I'm not trying to be cute with you, but one of the shortest chapters in all of Tanakh is Psalm 14. And Psalm 14 says begins by saying that only a fool says in his heart there's no God. So from the viewpoint of Tanakh, people who are atheists are just angry at God or something. You could say, I don't believe in God, but in your heart, you know there's something out there and you're fighting it and you you know, I watch I don't interact with atheists just because of what I do. I I get interviewed on T V shows by atheists, but they don't ever confront me. So I'm I don't interact with atheists very at all. But you could tell like like why are they fighting so hard? Like why is it so important to them? Like if we're all just walking bags of meat or walking protoplasm like, this world is completely materialistic. Like, why are you fighting with the same kind of vigor and zealousness that you did as a Christian? Like, why, like, what difference does it make? It's very obvious that they're angry, they're hurt, they've been let down. So, atheism, in my view, in my universe, is not the environment with a come to know about Koshberg who is easily as Christianity.
1: Okay, Rabbi Stinger, you've been very generous with your time. So, just before we conclude, I'll ask you a final question. If there's one message, getting back to our original topic about Jews being missionized, if there's one thing you could tell Orthodox Jews who are listening from Jews who want to know what they should know about missionaries, what would be the one thing you would tell them as they conclude listening to this podcast?
0: Don't waste your time trying to memorize the book of Matthew. I did it. You don't need to do that. (laughs) You don't need to do those things. If you know your own Tanakh, listen to me, kindlech You were born from above, not from below. If you have a De Vegas with Akkadish Baruch, a connection with the Almighty, based on Tanakh, visit the book of Isaiah, more than just the Haftaris. Learn it, it's marvelous. No not only no missionary of any religion will be able to harm me, you'll understand how to best have a relation with Hashem. And most importantly, you, the Jews. If you're not Jewish, you can listen in, but I'm talking to the Jews now. You, the Jewish people, have a special mandate in the world. In fact, Yeshia uses the term or Lugoyim. This is literally a light to the nations, Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. That's your job. Your job is to be the light to the world. How are you going to do that if you're not, not learning Tanakh? I encourage you to return back to these holy books and, and be a light to the world so that we can see the B.S. Goyal, the
1: coming of the Redeemer, quickly in our time. Thank you for having me. Amen. Rabbi Tovia Singer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Always. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences